1: That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: In our world today, there are major wars being fought. We have recently gone through a global pandemic, and there are still places, shamefully, where people go hungry and starve. I imagine, however, that most of you listening are not facing these realities on a daily basis. And I believe that the study of history has the capacity to sharpen our critical faculties and to enlarge our empathy. Today on Not Just the Tudors, we are thinking about the brutal realities of life in the 16th and 17th centuries. The almost total war and the development of means of warfare that made war catastrophic for civilians as well as soldiers. We're considering not just one pandemic, but multiple epidemics that recurred with ruthless regularity. And we're thinking about both man-made and natural famine. It's a wonder that anyone survived the period at all. To introduce us to these grim facts is Professor Ole Peter Grell. His book, co-written with Andrew Cunningham, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Religion, War, Famine and Death in Reformation Europe, has long been a touchstone of mine and I highly, highly recommend it. It considers the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Today our discussion focuses on just three of them, the red horse of war, the black horse of famine and the pale horse of death and disease. But the fourth horseman, the threat of apocalypse that hung so heavy over the lives of the Tudors and their contemporaries, was ever their companion. After 15 years at the University of Cambridge, Professor Grell became Professor of Early Modern History at the Open University He's the author of numerous books exploring the impact of the European Reformation, medicine, disease and health care, and the impact of epidemics and climate change in Northern Europe. I'm delighted that he joins me today. Professor Grell, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you. Now, your book has been one that I have been returning to for many years because I think it really gives a sense of the overwhelming level of threat and the spectre, the sort of fear under which these people lived in the 16th and 17th centuries. And you are considering your four horsemen of the apocalypse in your work, but we're going to take just three of them today. And the first one is the red horse, which is warfare. In the years 1500 to 1700, the major countries of Europe were at war 95% of the time. Can you tell us a bit about how warfare was developing in these years?
3: I would probably limit it to the 150 years from 1500 to the end of the 30 years war. It peters out after then quite a bit. But these were, of course, years when warfare was endemic across Europe. And as a result of it, you got what generally amongst historians is called the military revolution, which meant larger armies, better equipment of a more lethal nature, of course, because cannons in particular are coming in to play a particular role and causing more devastation than ever seen before. You also have in this period, sieges became longer and they caused, of course, famine, they cause disease and a higher degree of death in populations in and around.
2: And I suppose that this is a period in which you've as you've described as we've got this kind of technological innovation. And another feature that really strikes me of the military revolution is the size of armies is just growing exponentially.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt that armies are growing quite fast, and what we tend to possibly forget in our day, is that with the extra number of soldiers, we get extra number of animals. So you would have had colossal numbers of troops, with them probably double the number of animals to sustain the transport and the cavalry, and you would have had army followers who were basically providing a lot of the provisions, the logistics, and making a living out of actually supplying individual regiments. So army camps would have been colossal and an army of a certain size traveling through the countryside would have laid it bare. And it's quite clear from the evidence we have that it's completely devastating. An army traveling through your neighborhood would result often in horrible disease and famine, apart from all the other incidents.
2: Yes, I think that's so important because it's not just having an effect on those who are soldiers. This is something that is having an impact on civilian life. And I wonder also if there's something to be said about the dominance of war in the way that it affected social and cultural life at the time.
3: It undoubtedly did. You can see it from the writings that the fear of actually being roped into war was devastating in kind of social life and what to expect. So people would abandon areas if they thought they were at risk of being invaded or laid siege to. And there was of course, a natural discussion within cities on the siege, what to do, because the fear of course, of being taken by storm, whereby everything was open to the storming soldiers Rape and pillage and everything which went with it was scary. So we have, of course, throughout this period, many incidents where the besieging armies paid off to go away to avoid the further consequences of what could happen.
2: I mean, what's very striking as you speak is, as we'll see, that the links between these different manifestations, these different horsemen of the apocalypse, certainly ride together, don't they? Because the black horse, that of famine, is crucial when we're thinking about military strategy. I wonder if you can tell us about the Siege of Sancerre of 1573, because I'm always surprised how few people know about this. And it is, you know, this extraordinary eighth month's siege by Catholic royal forces against this Protestant town, or the Huguenot town we might think of it as, and over 500 people die. I'm particularly interested in the French wars of religion and the impact they have on people, but this is an extraordinary example that we have such good evidence of as well.
3: It is a particularly strong example of the collapse of civil structure. You start by eating your last provisions. And then you start focusing on dogs and horses and whatever. And in some cases, there is, of course, the idea that or the fear that you're starting to eat fellow human beings who've died. And the significance of something like that, of course, is that everything breaks down. We tend to think about modern warfare in the 21st century as involving more civilians than ever. But I think that's probably a complete illusion. It involved civilians to an extent some of us would have found absolutely amazing in that period, because there really is nothing left in Sancerre towards the end.
2: Yes, I mean, I was so struck by the fact that they're trying to eat leather, and then they're trying to eat books and paper and trying to boil them up.
3: The Thirty Years' War is full of little pamphlets claiming that these kind of sieges have led to people eating their fellow citizens because there was nothing else to eat. And it's probably an overstatement in some cases, but there's no doubt that you reach a point where there's nothing left. Everything is broken down, human relations, civil structures, and it's just amazingly horrible, so to speak.
2: Yes, and you're absolutely right. This is one of the instances where we do have records about the cannibalism, the eating of a child as a three-year-old girl. You. Talk about here, and I suppose what's particular about this famine is that we have such good evidence of it, and I suppose most of the time people aren't keeping records of the last thing they're thinking about when they're absolutely starving is let's write this down, but in this instance, we have a Huguenot minister in the camp who, at some point, then or later, writes down the details, so we get that kind of granular information about the number of people dying each day, the vulnerability of the young, and this turning to such desperate measures, even to the point of eating a young girl.
3: Yeah. We are, of course, quite fortunate to have that detailed record of what happened. In many cases, I think there may well have been similar records, if you take the Thirty Years' War, but they have simply not survived. What has survived there is popular pamphlets, which in some cases seem to quote similar kind of events. But this, of course, is so detailed and over the whole stretch of the seeds, that it stands out. And of course, as always, with sources, we have to be lucky to have something as good as that to tell us what happened.
2: So this is a famine that clearly looks like it's man-made. More generally speaking, were famines man-made or were they natural?
3: What is interesting about this period, which of course is, as we point out, the first time since the Black Death, that the European population is seriously increasing. And in this period, I think we can justifiably say that the population of Europe more or less doubled. So that's quite a dramatic event. And it was clearly problematic for food production to keep up with that. And it takes, I think, the whole period for most food production to catch up. And obviously, in the most well-organized countries like the Netherlands and England, they catch up Earlier, So we don't get towards the end of the period peacetime famines in these countries, but you certainly have them across Europe more significant to start with than towards the end of the period. And of course, if you go to something like a major European incident, which is well recorded and covered across Europe, like the Peasants Wars, that is preceded by three very serious famines in peacetime across southern Germany.
2: Yes, and of course we have to understand it's absolutely a cause of those revolts. I want to ask you what we should know about the diet of the lower orders of society at this time that would have made them more vulnerable to famine and starvation than they might otherwise have been.
3: The kind of agricultural production had been basically the same for a very long period after the Black Death. And to actually expand it and cover that kind of population growth, in terms of cereal production and so on, would have been very difficult. There is, of course, that to be said about famine, that of course, it's the lower orders of society who suffer. Nothing new in that, and in many respects, nothing has changed. But at the higher up, of course, where you could afford a better diet, more kind of dairy products, more meat, and all these things, the effects were minimal. To a great extent, I think, the changes which we have in this period, too, in how you socially construct society, it is clear that the attempts to improve poor relief and assistance in crisis is something which is closely linked to that. There's a realisation, at least in some quarters, that we can't just leave this undone and nothing happening and just wait for people to die. We have to then make sure that, for instance, some cities would buy in corn supplies in order to keep the price low and also introducing ways and means to help the down and outs so they didn't die immediately.
2: So things are improving. The situation is ameliorating over the course of these two centuries. But could you give some idea of how regular an occurrence famine was in this period?
3: I think if you start thinking of famine as something which could occur quite easily within a decade or two in most societies to start with, that is, harvest failed. The weather, whatever, meant that suddenly there was a crisis. And because society with a growing population was living quite close to the edge, there wasn't much kind of flexibility to help things out in these situations until some leading citizens started to take an initiative to make sure that there was better storage and all that kind of stuff. Later on, towards the end of the period, I think we can see that peacetime famines are occurring with greater and greater gaps. But we have a problem there, of course, because in the sense that this is also a period with increased warfare, it's quite difficult at times to separate what is a famine caused by warfare from one which is linked to, let's say, natural elements, no rain, whatever. It's always quite tricky what is what in that situation.
2: That's a very sobering thought that you know if you reached your middle teens you would have been very lucky indeed not to have already experienced a period of famine and that it would have been going on once in a generation at least I mean I'm thinking of a generation here is around 15 years that this is something that people apart from the very rich knew they had experienced this had experienced it possibly once twice three times in their lives it makes clear to us how very different their world was from our own at least in the global north How did they understand famine? What did they think caused it?
3: They were obviously alert to what we would call natural developments, like lack of rain, disease of whatever nature. At the same time, of course, they understood it very much, as the book points out, in a religious context. So you would have interpreted your kind of natural disasters as part of God's plan. And of course, in this period, with a strong apocalyptic flavour, that the more of it you got, the closer we were to the second coming. And you could, of course, find plenty of evidence in the Bible for that.
2: Yes, I suppose these two centuries very much look like you're approaching the end days. You mentioned disease as well, and I want to pick up on that. Obviously, famine, obviously the sort of siege warfare that we have going on is going to add to the likelihood of epidemic disease, super spreader events, I suppose one could think of them as in modern terms. And you look in your book at the pale horse, which is disease and death. And one of the diseases that appears in this period for the first time is variously referred to as the Neapolitan disease or the Great Pox or the Morbus Gallicus. How and where was this new disease first identified and what were its symptoms?
3: The symptoms seem to have been much more dramatic to start with. And the pox, or some people thought it's very similar to syphilis, but as a historian, I would avoid to make that comparison. But it clearly is a disease of that nature. It seems to have spread very rapidly in the first couple of decades of the 16th century. The disease also would seem to have had a slightly different shape It killed more people, it killed them faster, but it was easily identified, of course, because of the smell and the tendency of your sexual organs to rot away. And there was, of course, a big industry in trying to deal with it, which never was that successful. And to some extent, you could say that the pox became the stepping stone for a new physician like Paracelsus to step forward, and offer different solutions, but gradually it settled down the post. It was there and a problem well into the 17th century, but it had then become a slower disease, which obviously started with some of the early signs of it, which could be identified. But then people didn't die from it until within 20 years, often. So it changes its nature over time. There is a general idea that this is a new disease, which, of course, there's a feeling it's originated from the new world and has been brought back as a punishment in these latter days.
2: So many interesting things you said there. I want to first of all ask you about this idea that as a historian, you talk about it in a different way, because we get the name syphilis emerging in the 1530s. Is it appropriate to use that terminology for the disease that has developed over 40 years or so by that point in time. And what causes you to feel wary of applying labels to a previous pathogen? I quite
3: like the original labels, which of course have geographical or national significance. So the French pox clearly is very much the way it's portrayed from England and is possibly because people have encountered it first there. Syphilis is, of course, a more modern concept of similar or same disease. But for contemporaries, it was known as the pox, often with a geographical addition and whatever. But that was what they saw it as. And it clearly, again, was seen an apocalyptic light, because this was a new disease which had suddenly arrived. There was, of course, within the medical textbooks, there was nothing there to help you. Galen had never seen anything like that. So there was nothing about it. And that, of course, opened up possibilities of treatment. There were the Fuga merchants who were basically cornering the market for coicum. The woods they would burn in baths in order to help people. And then, of course, eventually other treatments, mercury, especially through people such as Paracelsus, come through. But it was, of course, also a disease which people could see quite quickly. It had physical effects on people you could see that they were clearly affected by it and that was before they were mentally affected by it too and went completely mad.
2: What was the social impact of the pox?
3: I think we probably
2: there would
3: think it had the greatest impact amongst the upper echelons as opposed to the lower echelons. The reason for that is again that we have more evidence preserved of that and when you go to the lower groupings in society their lifespan was relatively short so in many cases we would not know to what extent the pox had actually hit them as seriously as we know especially amongst european royalty and nobility
2: and obviously people are thinking of this as you said in this kind of apocalyptic way is there an added dimension to the fact that this appears to be a sexual disease, that an association with sin? Do people have an idea that what has caused it is that?
3: Undoubtedly. So again, that would have added an even stronger apocalyptic feel to it, that this kind of general human sin and lack of morality was now being hit directly by God by introducing a new disease, the pox. And no doubt that would have shaped the way people looked at it in contemporary terms.
2: Talking of new diseases, can we discuss the sweating sickness?
3: Yeah, it's also known as the English sweating disease in continental Europe, because it obviously reached, especially Scandinavia and northern Germany from England, and was clearly a type of flu, but quite devastating. It killed a lot of people. It seemed to have been prevalent in a 20-year period, but not more than that, and then gone away again. But again, a new disease, which has a dramatic impact because clearly there was no resistance to it. And again, a wonderful thing to add an apocalyptic gloss to. Here we are in the latter days, and one more disease is added to it.
2: And I suppose we might now understand its disappearance, which seems so mysterious that it comes and then goes, as actually being what politicians talked about as herd immunity. You reach a point at which the virus can't do any more damage (laughs) or enough people have been exposed to it. No, I think
3: it's a classic equivalent to flu. It will kill dramatically to start with, and then gradually the immune base is building up. And then it will disappear. It will disappear also because it becomes less virulent. You would imagine that the leftover, so to speak, of the sweating disease, or the English sweating disease, was there for another couple of decades, but not causing any deaths and serious illness.
2: And in those early days, when it is in its more extreme form, obviously sweating is one of the <laughs> symptoms, but what are the others?
3: The sweating and the high temperatures is what we know. That's really it. So people die from either dehydration or basically the high temperature will get them earlier than that, but we don't really know much about it.
2: And I suppose part of that is because people die so quickly. Isn't it one of those ones that if they're going to die, they often die within 24 hours?
3: 24, 48 hours. So it's fast. And I would imagine that no one was hanging around to find out exactly what it was in the 21st century way. You got people buried as quickly as possible. And that was it.
2: And also the other big one, I suppose, is the plague. And people often think of the plague as the Black Death of the 1340s. How common was the plague in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries?
3: It was surprisingly common. And most urban communities of a certain size would be faced with it within certainly two decades, often within one decade, and then repeated again. So, yeah, it never went away from Europe until suddenly we get to the middle of the century and it starts then disappearing. And the last plague incident in Europe is Marseille in the early 18th century, but it's quite unique and standing out. And plague of course was and remained an absolutely horrific disease. It, on average, every 10 years in London killed about 20% of the population. And the amazing thing is that London is growing at the same time quite rapidly. So people are streaming in from the countryside to find opportunities in the bigger cities. But as a consequence of them packing in closely together, there is an enormous death toll at regular intervals.
2: You say in your book that disease identity does not consist solely in its causative microorganism, the pathogen, and that a significant part of its identity is constituted by how it's experienced by those who suffer it, that is to say people's perception of it. So what was people's perception of the plague, given the enormity of the mortality rate and the regularity of its occurrence? How did they understand its identity on a psychological level?
3: Again, I think the Bible, which of course had been made available in the vernacular, became a great explanatory model for what was going on. And, of course, it was linked into the general apocalyptic expectations. Here we go again with plague, and we all visited all these things. And they were, of course, all nicely lined up in the relevant parts of the Bible. So you could pop in and get kind of support for the way you interpreted it. The way local communities tried to deal with it in terms of isolation and lockdowns had horrific effects on it. Because, of course, the moment you had a plague case in one house, you locked down the whole house with everyone in it and put a red cross on the door. But in most cases, of course, it meant that the plague took the whole lot. But like with our COVID experience, some people were resistant and survived it. It is very much seen as a disease you can't do anything about except trying to put down some walls between you and it. And to some extent, it worked, but with quite horrific effects. Where you could say that a lot of the kind of plague incidents started in the central cities. Gradually, you find them towards the end of the period we're concerned more isolated in the kind of poor dwellings in suburbia where people are piled in together. And it is quite interesting how the pattern chains between the well off center towards the poor kind of surrounding bits of the city. And again, I think if we look at it quite closely, there's no doubt, like most diseases in the period, have a much stronger impact on the poorer sorts in society.
2: I remember during the pandemic watching some of the footage coming out of Spain and the funerals that were held with very few people in attendance, possibly no one. And it seems in terms of thinking about the plague that one of the awful effects for people at the time is that it would have prevented a good death and that there was something identity stripping in the way that corpses were piled into communal graves. There isn't any of the reverence around the process of dying, the process of being shriven, and all of the belief that exists around mortality that normally sustains them through those rights. Am I on the right track? <laughs> no, no, you
3: are on the right track there. That It is where you keep a semblance of order. And a good example could be, if you go to some of the immigrant communities in London at the time, they always appointed a special carer for the sick In plague incidents. It was someone who could provide care and assistance and was willing to do so despite the risk and was paid well for it. But it also was a way of protect their ministers from actually having to go out to the different families infected and therefore possibly die quite quickly. So it was in a way of introducing a buffer, offering some care, but perhaps not the top quality you could have expected if you got it. But these were, of course, the incidences where the structure held up, so to speak. There's no doubt that when whole houses died out, they were all piled up on carts and taken to mass graves as quickly as possible. And it cannot but have made the coherence of society even lessen that situation.
2: Yes. And once again, did they have any idea what caused it?
3: There was, of course, ideas about miasma, it came through the air, it came through potentially touching and so on, but a clear idea was not there, so to speak. The resolution was to go back to the Bible and say, this is it, God has sent this to us, we have to get through it and deal with it. But apart from trying to lock down areas and communities, There was really very little they could do. Again, they tend to die quite fast in many instances from the plague. Again, within a few days, they caught it, got the buboes, you were identified, and then you died within two or three days later. There is, of course, cases of people surviving it. (laughs) So clearly must have had some resistance. They get the indications they've got it, they're ill, but they actually recover.
2: Just to finish then, can you summarise for us a sense of the way in which these are all interlinked? We've talked about them separately, but these four horsemen are all riding together, aren't they, in this period? That is, of course,
3: a starting point for the book in the sense that Dürer creates this image for the first time with the four horsemen riding together. And if you look at what we have of textual evidence, pictorial evidence and cheap print and whatever, these things are seen as coming together with a higher incidence. There are signs in the stars of increasingly new comets and all sorts of things. And there is, of course, the kind of disasters flooding in Germany and the fear of a second deluge. And there are all these diseases, of course, for which you can do very little and who kill an awful lot. So this is all seen together that there's more of it than we've ever had before. Why is that? The explanation is there in the Bible that it's adding up to the last days. And there, of course, you can expect either the thousand year kingdom or the immediate return of Christ, and there's a variety of options in that. But it really is the way of understanding the world for early modern man and woman at that point, that this actually acts an explanation. One thing reinforces the other, apart from the crises which are there, you're then given the Bible in the vernacular, which adds an ideological text, an explanation, which gets a further concentration on all these things are now happening, must be coming just around the corner. So it all links it neatly and wonderfully together. And you could see illustrations of the book of Revelation are essential to a man like Luther as a starting point, And you can then see the ending point with Matthew Mirian's even more detailed prints of the same.
2: Thank you so much for introducing us to this idea. As I said earlier, your book, which for those who want to be reminded of the name is The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Religion, War, Famine and Death in Reformation Europe, has been for me an absolutely essential guide to understanding the realities of living in early modern Europe. So I would urge all of those listening to get themselves a copy of this beautifully illustrated and wonderfully informative book. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Graf. Pleasure. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just The Tudors.